Congregation, at this time, I'd like to ask that you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Congregation, may God add a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. Well, beloved saints of God, greetings once again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Brother Mario mentioned earlier, after a wonderful time at family camp, delighting in God's creation and worshiping together, we are now back with one another in his house, tasting and smelling the glories of heaven. The glory of God that awaits all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this Lord's Day, both in the morning and afternoon hour, I'd like to call your attention to 1 John chapter 4, particularly verses 1 through 3. 
verses 1 through 3. That is where I ask your attention to be this blessed Sabbath. Our topic at hand, as it were, by way of the preaching of God's word, is testing the spirits. Testing the spirits. This is what we are going to be considering by way of the preached word in both services. Testing the spirits. Examining those who profess and or come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeking fellowship or perhaps the opportunity to teach. Examining that. Examining those who profess Christ and seek to have fellowship with you in the name of Christ and teach you the things of Christ. The Bible calls us congregation And yes, us, as the beloved Apostle John is writing to the church, he is writing to believers. He's not writing to just ministers, although ministers are even more so required to examine the spirits or test the spirits. But there is a biblical obligation for all of God's people to examine those who come in the name of the Lord seeking to teach you things of the Lord. If self-examination isn't hard enough for all of us, the Word of God calls us to examine those who come into the church or those who even may meet you outside the local church for that matter and say things like, I'm a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus died for my sins and then subsequently seek to teach you things concerning that very Christ. This is something that all of us are to examine at all times. So it's a very important matter, to say the least. Just like self-examination is critical for the growth of the Christian, it is important to examine yourself daily. It's It's not important to question your salvation daily. It's not important to uh, assume that you're not a Christian daily or something of that sort, but it is important to examine yourself in light of what the scriptures teach. Likewise, it is important to examine those who come seeking to teach the scriptures. It is likewise important. I would actually argue that, and I believe there's a biblical case for this, that examining the spirits, testing those who come bearing the things of the Lord, is a matter of the first table of God's law. Uh, It's a matter of wisdom, ultimately, and that will be the first point this morning in the sermon, the wisdom of examining those who come in the name of Christ. But wisdom, as we know, is always rooted in the law of God. Wisdom has a foundation. Wisdom isn't just this thing in the air that comes and goes, but it is rooted in the revealed will of God. And the wisdom for examining those who come professing the things of God is really found in God's third commandment. It's found in God's third commandment. The name of the Lord is to be used reverently. The name of the Lord is also to be received reverently. We are not only required to 
hold reverently the name and things of the Lord, but we are also required to show reverence when it comes to the things of the Lord. At times, this would mean that we are to not listen to false theology, false teachings, false doctrine, things of this sort, which would require what? That we examine the things taught. It's a matter of the third commandment. Therefore, examination is not only wise, but really necessary. Professing the Christian faith is more important than saying things like, I'm religious, or I believe in God. Professing the Christian faith, the one true faith, is a very direct claim. It's a very direct assertion. This is why making a profession of faith is a serious matter, both by the one professing it and by the one receiving a profession. Therefore, it would follow that we are to receive those who claim to be of the Christian faith in an orderly manner. And the order here requires examination and evaluation. So there are two points for this morning's sermon. The wisdom in receiving a person and the test of true faith. God does not only in this text of scripture caution us through the words of the beloved apostle John to examine those who come in the name of Christ, but he also gives us the tool, as it were, for this examination. Let's go ahead and begin with the first point, the wisdom in receiving a person. Verse 1 in chapter 4, Beloved, do not, res- do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. In 1 John chapter 3, building up to this caution, as it were, the beloved apostle has already given the church both the imperative of love and the outworking of love within the church particularly with the command to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, the apostle here, uh, up to this point, has really, really brought home the need for Christians to love one another, to love one another in light of the finished work of Christ. By this, he summarizes this love, pointing us to the very words of Christ, his commandments as a guide To Christian living. In other words, he's already getting their brain uh, worked, as it were, with regards to the things of the law. And it is that same law, that law that calls us to love our brother and sister in the Lord, that we must keep at the forefront of our mind when we receive the Word of God. So, So John begins this chapter with a word of caution. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. What are we testing them for? To see if they are of God or if they are of something else. What does it mean then to test the spirits? Well, to state this plainly, to test the spirits is to examine the words that are presented to you by those that profess to have the Spirit and to, pro- to actually examine the person themselves. You see, the Bible 
not only calls the minister of the gospel to preach the word of God, to preach the truth of God, but also calls the minister of the gospel to have particular requirements. This isn't to say that the person that is not require, not um, called to preach the word of God should not be listened to by any way, shape, or form. But it is to say that we are called to evaluate both the things that are said and the one that is saying it as well. And what is meant here in this examination is really twofold. When we think of those who profess to have the Spirit, it's really twofold. It's first and foremost that they have the Holy Spirit, that they have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. You see, it doesn't require a man to have the Holy Spirit to come up and preach to you true things about the Scriptures. Unfortunately, there are many, many people in this world that have quite a bit of truth, yet are still lost yet are still dead in their sins. For example, in the time of Christ, the Pharisees. Pharisees had a lot of truth. They knew the law of God. They knew the things of old. Yet so many of them were still dead in their sins. This is likewise the case with natural theology. The things that are clear about God by way of nature. In Acts chapter 17, Paul walks up to the men at the Areopagus who are saying things about God that are true, that are observable, that could be understood. Yet these men were still dead in their sin because they were worshiping God in a foreign manner. And how do you really know if somebody, what is really the test of somebody's faith Well, I mean, there are many tests. We're going to see one. What do they say about the incarnation, the person of Christ? Yet another test is how do they worship God? You want to see what someone's faith looks like? Go to church with them. Or find out where they go to church. If they even go to church. As many people will say they worship God and love God, and then when you ask them what church they go to, they don't have an answer for you. It's because worship says a lot about what we believe concerning our Lord. This is likewise the case when it comes to the preaching of God's word. This is especially the case. So first and foremost, do they have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them? And then secondly, those that profess to have the Spirit, it is one thing to say that they actually are being led by the Spirit in the sense that they are of the Spirit, they are Christians, But then there's another question that needs to be asked concerning those who preach and teach the Word of God, and that is, are they equipped with the gifting and fitting of the Holy Spirit? Do they have that gift of preaching? Are these people that we should receive by faith because the Spirit of God has equipped them to give us the things of God? These are questions we must ask. In other words... Testing the Spirit is a matter of receiving the Christian in the name of Christ by those who profess to know Christ. This is especially those who have been said to be equipped by Christ for the purpose of preaching and teaching. This is a very important word of caution for the church in the first century. As many walked around 
as self-proclaimed preachers and teachers. Many would walk around and see that the apostles, for example, spoke with authority and had their words received with authority and had people glorifying God in light of the way God was using them. And sinful men would see that and want that. In the same way, sinners today look at the TV and see all kinds of jewelry and all this money and worth and all these things and they have a desire for it. So there were sinful men during the time of our Lord who would see teachers, who would see preachers and and self-proclaim to be exactly what they are seeing for, the, for nefarious purposes. And these people needed to be tested. False prophets, false teachers, bringing in false doctrines. For example, like the Gnostics and others who came into the church with destructive heresies. So what is the church supposed to do? Sit around and just allow anyone to come in and teach whatever they wanted? Were they to just deal with the period of destruction? Our Lord just died, established the church, sent the apostles out to go and plant churches. And now, in light of all of this, you have new believers gathered in the name of the Lord. Many of these churches without uh, ministers, without bishops, without leadership. And you had wolves in sheep's clothing coming in, going to and fro, which Christ warned the church about in his public ministry. What is the church to do? Lay down, accept these errors, mingle with those who affirm the doctrines of demons? What were the Christians to do in the time of John? Come on, Gnostics, come on in. We'll, We'll deal with this together. Right? We're all in this together. No, The Spirit of God works in the beloved Apostle under inspiration and says, caution the church. Tell the church to beware. Reiterate the things that I've already said in my public ministry. Be watchful, beloved. And there are degrees. You see, congregation, I took took three sermons on this passage at Sentinella because there are even degrees of watchfulness. Yes, John is telling the entire church to be watchful. But like I said before, ministers have more of an obligation to be watchful. Right? As shepherds, they are to be watchful in a different manner. And so on and so forth. And really the wisdom, by the way, beloved, the wisdom in in your watchfulness, it actually, like all things, like many things, begins in the household of God. It's, it's, it applies to even your pastor. It applies to visiting ministers. The noble Bereans were lauded for what? For their nobility when it came to the Scriptures. For their reverence when it came to receiving the Word of God. And they received the Word of God from an apostle one greater than the ministers under the new covenant. One that walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. One that received 
the very words from those who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they still examined the things that were preached by Paul in light of the Holy Scriptures. There is a watchfulness, an examination that comes by way of the Scriptures. And when you consider the Bereans, and you consider what the Word of God says concerning the Bereans, what was the reason that they wanted to receive the words of the Apostle Paul with wisdom? To find out whether these things are so. Truth. It's about truth. It's not about the person giving the instrument of God. It's not about the instrument. It's about the words of truth. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Meaning, this ought to bring us to a state of humility even in our examination. Even when we receive the things of the Lord from those who proclaim to be sent by God, even this requires humility. Because it's not about, the, it's not about us. It's not about the person preaching. It's about the truth. It's about finding out whether the things were so, whether the things received are true. And while wisdom is necessary with regards to the worship of God by way of preaching and teaching his word, it is likewise necessary that we do not limit this examination to just the Lord's Day. We don't just put our examination hats on as Christians, as it were, on the blessed Sabbath. Right? You know, in some sense, it starts in the household of God, but there is less examination, as it were, over time in the household of God. Because you begin to know and grow confidence in your ministers and, and know what they're going to preach and how they're preaching and things of that sort. But outside the household of the Lord, that is not the case. Outside of the local church, you have all kind of ministries seeking your support, all kind of theological uh, persuasions sent your way, whether it's the next uh, theological argument in the church in your confessional circle, or whether it's the next outlandish statement said by one theologian. You have brothers and sisters in different churches with different doctrinal convictions. One church allows this in their worship. Another church prohibits this in their worship. You even have your favorite ministers outside the local church, Paul Washer or John MacArthur or whoever else, maybe another Reformed Baptist. Yet you're still called to examine. You are still called to consider the things that are being said in the name of Christ by these people or these ministries in accordance with his word. So to examine is not to be skeptical about everything, but to be wise and protective over your own soul with the desire to preserve the purity of truth. And this caution, I believe, is really for our own good. We're susceptible and we're prone to anything under the sun. Under, under the sun. Excuse me. 
Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why do we sing that? Because it's true. We are prone to, we are prone to uh, all evil, as the Heidelberg Catechism, I believe, question 33 says. We are prone to these things. So this examination keeps us in the word. It keeps us on our toes, as it were. And as I was driving down the 14, and I, I'm sure you guys have seen it, a big uh, banner that says, Jesus is coming, right? I don't know who put that there. Maybe a heretic, for all I know. But it's true. And guess what? Being cautious, being mindful of the word of God as it is received by those coming in the name of the Lord, keeps us mindful of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keeps us prepared, which we want to be, which we ought to be, as we, as we read things like, Jesus is coming. You know, I'll be honest, as I was driving for the next, I think, 20 minutes after that, I thought about my sermon, and I think about my sermons like most ministers, Every Lord's Day before we preach, right? We think of how we're going to preach and what we should and should not say. And I thought to myself, does this, does my message or does my, do my messages this morning prepare the congregation for the coming of Christ? Because that's what I think when I read Jesus is coming as a minister. Well, are we prepared? Well, again, when we think of examining the things of the Lord as they are preached, it keeps us prepared. It keeps us prepared, keeps us on our toes, as it were. So we are told to be cautious, testing those things that come in the name of Christ. But the next question really, and I think the more important question, as it were, is what is that test? How are we to test these very things? Yes, Pastor, you've said the scriptures, the word is the test, and we need to go back to the Bible. But what specifically? Well, let's look to our second point this Lord's Day. The the test of true faith. By this, the Word of God says in 1 John 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is not of God. How do we know who we can really receive as brothers or sisters in the faith, bringing us the things of the Lord, whether it be the visiting minister from Sentinella or the older sister that we're meeting with to talk about the more mature things of motherhood? Well, we consider what they say about Christ. What's the test? Wait a second. Before you say anything, what do you say about Jesus? Right? What do you say about Jesus? Consider the scriptures and what they speak of concerning this matter. Matthew chapter 16. Everybody, all of you should know this passage. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
And he said to them, it's the Lord Jesus. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So the test the true test, as it were, of when you're examining those that are speaking the things of the Lord is who do they say Jesus is? That's first and foremost. Who do they say the Lord Jesus Christ is? So when you have these ministers, when you have these ministries, whatever they may be, who does this man say that Jesus is? Is the more important question than what he says about Jesus And this might sound controversial to you, but even if he has truth, even if he comes with true things, bulletproof, just the scriptures, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who does he say the person he's talking about is. I want to know that first and foremost. And that's what the scriptures teach here. Who is he to them? We know who Jesus is to us, and we know what the scriptures say about Jesus, but when we are receiving the things about Jesus, it's important that we know what they say about him. But this question needed to be answered before receiving one as a brother and sister, or sister in Christ, excuse me. And this is the very question the Lord asks Peter himself. And the Lord asks Peter knowing the answer. Knowing that Peter was a follower of Christ. And here in this passage in 1 John 4, I believe we have even further of of a help, as it were. As there are many things, even when asked, what do you say concerning Christ? There are many things that one may be willing to discuss and can discuss. But John here, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, focuses on the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation. The second person of the blessed Trinity taking upon himself human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Is this the Jesus then that you proclaim? One who is very God, very man to use confessional language here. This is a big question, congregation. It is. Is this the Christ you proclaim, the one who is very God, very man? This cuts to the heart of the issue. You see, Muslims will say kind things about Jesus. Muslims will actually say very kind things about the Christian faith. I know uh, mainstream media makes... um, Islam and Muslims look like fanatics, and many of them are in reality. Um, When you get to the central tenets of what they confess, what they believe, many of them will say kind things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe even like he's a prophet. Um, Things like believe the Bible, right? The Bible is truth. We are to receive it as the words of God, the inspiration of God, right? The Quran says these things. And faithful Muslims should believe what their book says. 
When it comes to the things about Jesus, they'll affirm a lot of things that we would affirm. Until it comes to the incarnation. Until it comes to the doctrine of the incarnation. Do you believe he's the son of God? That's, that's, you'll never catch a Muslim saying that they believe that he's the son of God. Because that's the one thing that they will not confess. It again deals with the incarnation. Or the Russellites, the quote-unquote JWs. They will say that Jesus is the Son of God, for example. They'll confess that, have no problem. And that Jesus was a prophet, and all of these true things of the Christian faith. But then you get down to the incarnation. Is he very God, very man? Absolutely not. They fold. This, these are examples that just show how crucial the doctrine of the incarnation is in relation to the question, who do you say that I am? As it relates to receiving the things of God. This is a narrow evaluation, a narrow standard by the word of God that we have when it comes to examining the Spirit's. And how important did this evaluation, as it were, stand the test of time? This is written in the first century, right? This letter to Christians written in the first. What do you see in the subsequent three centuries? Arguments about the incarnation, councils, churches arguing, bishops arguing, examining the scriptures, charging men and entire groups with heresy. Because of the denial of the humanity or the deity of Christ. The church has really disagreed on major and even minor matters concerning this doctrine. But the church has never rejected it. They've never rejected the incarnation. This has only been done by heretics and pagans. And is even still rejected today. So in this important point, this important test, our focus will not be on the minute aspects, but more of the significant primary truths concerning this doctrine that will help us equip, be equipped when we examine the spirits. First, does the person coming to you in the name of Christ believe that first and foremost God did indeed send his son? And not just that basic language, but that the Father, the first person of the Blessed Trinity, did indeed send the eternal Son into the world to redeem all that the Father would give him. This is the truth commonly rejected by those outside the faith. Once you start using Trinitarian language, you start losing folks that come in the name of Jesus. Jews, Muslims, even. The scriptures are clear. The Father sends the Son. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. 
One of my favorite passages long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Not only is the promise of the incarnation, the blessed son, the holy one, taking upon himself human flesh and the person and work of Christ. But so are the eyewitness realities of this found in the New Testament. Yet many have seen the Lord of glory, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, with their own eyes, even touched him and still rejected him, still rejected him. This is because the incarnation of our Lord and really all of the promises of God for that matter are supernatural doctrines that require the believer not to come to them by sight, but by faith. The point of this with relation to our text at hand is quite simply this. If the promised fulfillment of this truth is rejected by those who come to you professing the name of Christ, then they must be rejected outright. If you reject the incarnation, I don't want to hear anything you have to say, is what we should conclude, church. The second portion of this test deals with the nature of Christ, that the Son that is sent, that was sent, that was always to be sent, is very God, very man. Some may be thinking, why is this portion such a big deal? The work is finished. He came. He died for us. Why do we need to affirm that he is very God, very man, even now? Why can't we just be like the Gnostics who, who looked at the material as intrinsically evil and denied everything about it? Why can't we just chalk it up to mystery like some of the pagan religions of the second and third century? Well, because this doctrine is not only true, but it's of practical significance to the believer. People will say the work is finished. Well, yes, the work is finished with regards to justification. Access, is God, access to God has been given. Why does it matter? Well, yes, sinners have access to God. But we still need Christ. We still need the Spirit of God to make us more and more like Christ. We still need a loving Father to go to and cry out. We have not been made perfect. So we need the doctrine of the Incarnation and we need to understand that it's, pla- it's practically applicable even now, knowing that Christ is very God, very man, seated at the right hand of the Father. And this doctrine of the Incarnation is necessary to affirm, thirdly, because it has everything to do with the redemption of God's people. And if somebody is coming to you speaking the things of the Lord, 
yet deny the very means by which we are redeemed, what is the point of listening to anything they have to say? For example, the incarnation is necessary with regards to us being redeemed by Christ's blood. He needed to be very God, very man, because the scriptures affirm in Acts chapter 20, God purchased the church with his own blood. It was not the Father that shed his blood on the cross. It's not the Holy Spirit that took the form of flesh. It's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So what they say about the incarnation of Christ matters with regards to redemption. He is the one that takes upon himself our flesh in this fallen world, which is an absolute matter of grace, by the way. That's why I love that hymn that we sung this morning. It's a constant reminder that it is, it was of grace, it is of grace, it will be of grace, and it always has been of grace. Not, that's evident even from the very beginning, taken upon himself, our flesh, in a fallen world, a world that causes us to cry, to be sad, to grieve. A couple nights ago, I, I seldom do I even read anything in the news anymore because it's just so sad. 2,000 some odd people dead from an earthquake in Morocco yesterday and the day before. It's sad. It's the world that we live in. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes into that world and takes upon our flesh that that sadness may be one day wiped away, will be wiped away. That's the only comfort that you have, Christian, when you're reading of the judgment of God by way of the consequences of sin that come from earthquakes and tornadoes and things of that sort. That is the only comfort that you have, that Christ will return to take that sadness away once for all. All of grace. As we consider the redemption that we have in his blood, that is a doctrine that is tied directly to the incarnation of our Lord. We would be fools not not to consider that even the taking upon himself human flesh was a matter of grace. Coming to the world with a mission as the obedient son seeking to honor his father is a matter of grace. To provide the very requirements of his law as we have heard this morning by way of the first commandment. To honor the Lord our God as one for our God knows no other gods. It's an absolute matter of grace by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when his life on this earth, his life of grace came to a close, he presents himself a living sacrifice once for all, calling all men and women, all children to believe in him, to receive forgiveness, to spend an eternity with him. And none of this happens without the shedding of his blood. And if someone comes, declares the name of the Lord and does not affirm this, then they can declare something else outside. It's not worthy of even your hearing. It's necessary 
that the incarnation is affirmed. This is why it is the true test of faith, as it were, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-3. through 3. You see, beloved, without the incarnation, nothing else really matters. Without the incarnation of our Lord, nothing else really matters. One can't make sense of the Bible without this doctrine. Genesis 3.15, the promise, the school-crushing seed of the woman. How does this happen without the second person of the Blessed Trinity taking upon himself human flesh? It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of necessity. Even if someone is going to talk about the Christian faith, how fruitless is a conversation about the faith if it has nothing to do with the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which speaks to the incarnation of our Lord. My question in closing is, How about you, brothers and sisters? Who do you say that he is? What do you believe about these things? And is this the true test as you consider the word of God as it is being preached? Does the one proclaiming the things of the Lord believe in the Lord? This is the question of wisdom, and this truly is the test when examining those who come in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Indeed, Lord, we praise your holy name that you do not leave us to our own wisdom, as it were, to navigate through this life, to bring glory to your name, Lord, as we are pilgrims on this earth and because of sin have to deal with false teachings and false doctrines and false prophets. But thanks be to God as your word is sufficient, O Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we have everything that we need in Christ. And thank you for faithful ministers of the gospel. As there are, as the word says, many false prophets and false ministers which ought to make us thankful for those who you have called to the ministry and equipped and seek to live to bring glory to your holy name by way of the proclamation of your word. Bless your word as it has gone forth, O Lord. Bless the food to our bodies that we will consume here shortly. Prepare our hearts for the next service as well, O God. Above all things, we do pray that Christ would receive the glory. It is in his name we pray. Amen.